David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts. I'm David Spade along with my co-host Elliot Harris. And this week we're spending the whole hour with Rosie Greer. Rosie made a name for himself playing for the New York Giants and Los Angeles Rams. He was one of the fearsome foursome. But he also had quite a career off the field. Let's get right to the conversation we have with Rosie Greer. So I see you were born in Georgia. Did you live in Georgia your whole life till you went to college at Penn State? No, I lived in Georgia until I was age 11, and I got to go to school three days a week. And the rest of the days, I had to beg my dad, but he wouldn't let me go to school. He wanted me to work in the fields. I worked in the fields. I shook cotton. I picked peanuts, and I... I, I plowed. I did all those things because, uh, and I had brothers and sisters, and I was really interested in going to school, but he wouldn't let me go. I had to do the work. And then when I went to school, I had to get up early in the morning and do all my chores out in the fields, like water hogs or stuff like that. And then when I came home from school, I'd go right to work. And uh, so... Yeah, I, I I was born in Georgia, and I and I got to go three days a week. And then when we moved to New Jersey, I was so happy because there it, you had to go to school until you were sixteen. So I had school, man. I was I went to school, and the kids laughed at me because I was uh, I was um, way behind in everything, and I had this accident. And, and, and I, as opposed to throw it, I said, choke it. <laughs> uh, it was amazing that, and, but I was behind. So, you know, I was behind everything, but that was a teacher named Mrs. Spring. Mrs. Spring kept telling me, she kept encouraging me. They had a friend, uh, uh that I got to know. The name was John Grassi. John Grassi was a straight A student. And I said, man, how are you doing that? He said, because I'm smart. I said, well, I said, how can I do it? He said, you're not smart like me. He said, but you could do better. So I became a book hawk. I was always in the book studying, learning, trying to catch up. And he got all A's and I got A's and B's. But I took a non-college preparatory uh, uh, class no one told me about going to college. And then uh, one day the coach asked me, uh, I'm a big guy, why don't I come out and play with the big boys? I know what he was talking about. But anyway, I went out to play with the big boys. And I put my glasses down on the field while I went inside to get my uh, my uniform. And, and, and it, as I got the uniform, I came up, came back out to where my glasses were at, let them play football over them. So they were broken, and I was really mad. He said, well, they said, well, you, you put your, you your, your glasses on the field. I said, yeah, but you guys were down there. They were down there. 
<laughs> so I went without glasses for for a little time until I got got money to get some more glasses. And um, so I worked at my dad was sick. He'd been working at a, at a chemical company, and he had got very sick. And my mom, my mom was a domestic worker, and so we lived with my brother-in-law. Uh, we lived in the basement, and uh, but I got, I went, to, I graduated from high school, and uh, none of my family came to see me graduate because they weren't interested in graduation. They weren't interested in my football playing, and I found out from my uh, baby brother not many years ago that uh, uh, one of his. Uh, the people that he knew was asking my dad about me, and my dad said, oh, that boy, he ain't going to mount enough. He's playing that football and stuff like that. He's always out there playing those games. So he's not going to mount to anything. And so anyway, that's – I got I got, I got got grades enough that, that, that I was able to take the college entrance exam. I took the entrance exam. And I didn't, I didn't know a lot of the stuff, but I, I got enough uh, uh, grades to go to go to Penn State. And I went first. I went to visit a lot of other schools, and I went to Virginia. And uh, the first time in my life, I ever saw a black woman with blue eyes, and I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And I went to go, I went to go to Virginia State because of uh, the blue-eyed girl. And then I went to Penn State, and they never even spoke to me about football. They spoke to me about graduating from school. I mean, I really loved that because that was my main interest is I wanted to, I wanted to get an education, and I wanted to get it from a, 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 a school that had a reputation. And so I went to Penn State. I, I didn't know what to take because I, 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 we took a uh, an examination and I scored very low on that examination so they recommended uh, 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 some courses some some uh, some uh, a curriculum but I wanted to play, I wanted to play music I wanted to be in music because I was a singer so they so they put me on a cello now remember I'm going into music I never ever studied one day of music in my life. I knew nothing about anything, no chord, no notes, no anything. And they put me with a cello. Well, that was showing me quickly the back door. And so, uh, the kids were very helpful in trying to keep me, uh, up with the class. I couldn't keep up because I was too far behind. Kids in my class would have been, been studying music for years, like, five, six years from, from from high school or grammar school. And so I switched to physical education and psychology. And that's what I got my degree in. Now, you come from a large family. Did the entire family uh, migrate north to New Jersey? And no, what, uh, Yeah, what, uh, what, all but one what, brother. Okay. What? what I went to Harrisburg. And some uh, went to uh, New Jersey, 
And my older brother stayed in Georgia because he was married in Georgia. His name was Boy. We called him Boy, but his name was Mose. And yeah. for another transition, a transition from the Deep South to New Jersey, what was that like? Well, I never, I never played with uh, white kids. I never, you know, spent time with white kids, and I always kind of learned uh, uh, from Georgia to stay away from white people. And then when I got to New Jersey, uh, it was all mixed school, and I didn't, I didn't really uh, 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 spend time with the white kids. So later on, as I, I as I got to know them, and we got to play football together, we got to talk together. Then I one of my greatest friends, a guy named Aaron Beinstein, and he was, was a Jewish kid there on, on a deli, and, and I got to know him. And all the way up until he died a few years ago. Anytime I go back east, I go by and visit with him, and and uh, a number of other other guys. We all kind of stayed friends together over all the years, and. Uh, so, but I got to where it didn't, it, it, it didn't matter to me what color you were. Uh, I'd heard all the names that you could hear, and it was just words to me. They didn't mean nothing to me. So a person called me a name, didn't make me, didn't make me mad, didn't make me angry because I knew that I, I knew who I am. So once you know who you are, you don't have to worry what someone else call you because you already know who you are. <laughs> That if they call you something and you get angry about that, that means you accepted it, and I don't accept it. it it's so more it doesn't reflection. bother me. Yeah, it's more a reflection on the person. It's more a reflection on the persons who is uttering those words than it is on yeah. the person who's yeah. the target yeah. of those yeah. words. Well, unless the person that's saying it and the person who is saying it to receives it, I don't receive it. So I don't have to get angry because I didn't receive it. So how did you start playing football at Penn State? I went there on a track scholarship. And, uh, but I knew I was going to play football. So I, I, I uh, became a uh, uh, fo- football player with the uh, football team. And uh, our first couple of games, they wouldn't let me play. Uh, I didn't even dress for the game, but I, as the season went on, I got to play both ways, uh, tackle both ways. And I played both ways throughout the whole uh, my career at Penn State. And you were at Penn State before Joe Paterno was their head coach? No, Joe Paterno, yes, Joe Paterno came there with Rip Engel from Brown. He was, he was, he was a quarterback at Brown. On Rip Engel, so Rip Engel brought him to uh, Penn State to teach him the wing tee. What sort of coach was Rip Engel? Great. He was a great coach. He was a great coach. He was a very nice man. Uh, he was well organized. And uh, I learned a lot playing under Rip Engel. And uh, so it was great for me. Pray under him. And you had a great and teammate. Joe, Joe, Joe Paterno was a back good coach. Too. Lenny Moore and Jeff Yarnell and, and, and many other guys. Uh, they were all great guys. Uh, but Lenny Moore was a Hall of Fame. Jeff Yarnell got to be a big time lawyer and, 
And there were a lot of other guys I can't call Daddy DeFalco, or Gene Dancer, uh, Bob Schneider, and, uh, 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 I can't, there's so many guys I can't remember them like that. Did you anticipate being drafted by the NFL? Well, yeah, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about playing pro ball, because uh, every time I get a letter from one of the team asking me, would I like to play on that team? I write it back and tell them no. I said, on one team I want to play on, that's the New York Giants. <laughs> so every time they got a letter, they got a letter back saying, I want to play one team, New York Giants. <laughs> I, I was really sitting myself up to negotiate, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know anything about negotiating. Uh, so they knew that they got me. So what happened when the Rams drafted me in the third round, I was traded to the New York Giants with Andy Robustella and Dale Schaffner. I was that third-round draft choice that they threw in. That's a pretty good trade for the Giants. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Was there a lot of, in your college team, were the black players and the white players friendly, or did they have to live in separate rooms, or did they share rooms, or was there a lot of uh, segregation there? There was, um, uh, I don't think that was, well, we didn't hang out together, and but we we uh, I was in a uh, fraternity called Alpha Phi Alpha, and we didn't have a house, so we did a lot of our, our activity with the white fraternities, and um, I got to I got to uh, make friends with wherever I went to, because I was always reaching out to to get to know the other guys and to play with my teammates and to be an encouragement. And uh, I got to be the captain of the, of the track team up at Penn State. And, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, but I, once the coach called me, because one of, the, one of the, 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 the girls that was in one of my classes, her dad was a professor, and so they would call me over to their house, and, 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 uh, and I have food over there, and then they'd teach me, try to catch me up on my, my academics. And so uh, one day a coach called me one Sunday morning, and he, he said, I, I understand you've been seeing a white girl. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, you've been seeing a I said, I said, look, man, I said, I make friends with whomever I want to. I said, her parents invited me over to their house to help me with my academics. And I said, nobody tell me who I could be friends with. And that was the end of that for me. Yeah, because we talked to Lenny Moore, and he described the situation as uh, somewhat difficult for an African-American man uh, at yeah. Penn State, you know, to get, yeah. you know for, ba for basic things like to get a haircut and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that, you know, everyone goes through things differently. Uh, I was, I didn't, see, I was born in, in the South, and I knew white people, so I thought. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mess around with, with, with you know, I just stayed in my own area and kind of like, uh, be friendly when I could, and the rest of the time I just, uh, I made my mind up long time ago to love everyone and to serve my fellow men. That was my that was my dream and serving my fellow men. And so I was always very friendly with everyone. Uh 
And uh, so I never had a problem with anybody. And then you were with the Giants there, and I mean, I read Frank Gifford's book, and he basically said that the Giants, they lived in the hotels, and it was a great time because they could go out every night, party, after practice, yeah. and it was like basically a 24-hour party. Well, um, what I didn't do was with the New York Giants, I didn't go out and party. And uh, Frank, Frank was a pretty boy on the team. In fact, a lot of the guys... Because Frank was so good looking and, and every, he was getting everything. And a lot of the guys, uh, didn't like Frank, but I, I loved Frank. Frank was a nice man and I used to talk to Frank all the time. In fact, I talked to him, uh, he and his son a couple of days ago. And I always talked to Frank and I, and so I thought I was going to have a hard time for the New York Giants because they was very in, integrated in terms of blacks and whites and most of the whites was from the South. And, man, I thought I was going to have a horrible time. And Jim Lee Howell was from, uh, I think, from Arkansas, uh, who was the head coach. And, uh, and then I saw Charlie Connor from Mississippi and all these guys, uh, Kyle Roth from, from Texas and and, uh, and Sam Huff from West Virginia. And, and I thought I was going to have a hard time. No trouble at all because I went there with the attitude that these were my teammates and that they weren't better than I was. I was as good as anybody that I meet, and uh, so uh, that I met. Yeah, so I I just start out by doing what I do. I, I was friendly, but I, I never tried to be friendly with the coaches. And any time uh, a ball player was on, on on my team, I'd reach out to them. And uh, any time there was trouble brewing, I tried to stop it. Anytime that was uh, uh, my teammates would deliberately try to hurt somebody on the other team, I I stop it because I I never want to win a game by uh, using tactics that were not according to the game because if you do that, then there's no game. You got you got tactics going and people are deliberately going out trying to hurt the other guy, and I didn't like that and I didn't want to play with a team like like that. And so anytime my guys. I found my guys trying to hurt Jim Brown. I was in there. I was stopping it. And once I had Johnny Unitas with both his legs trapped under him, and, and all I had to do was take him down, and both of his knees would have been broken. And and they said, take him down. I said, I'm coming up. And and so uh, I'd come up, and they said, what's wrong with you? I said, I'm not hurting that man for no football game. So I brought him up. And Jim Brown will tell you how many times I saved him out on the football field. So uh, I played, I wanted to play the game. I wanted to play hard, but I wanted to play fair, always fair. And realizing that in the long run, these guys will make it a fa- uh, living for their family. So why would you go out and hurt a man who's working for his family just like you are? It didn't make sense. So I didn't get involved in any of that stuff. At what point in your career did you say to yourself, "I, you know, I can play at this elite level professionally"? Did I had no long? doubt. No, I had no doubt because I started out my my first game. I started out as as, as uh, the 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 defensive tackle for the for the Giants. I didn't play behind no one ever. I was always first team. 
And uh, Giants were loaded with great players. Like you said, Robustelli was on that team. You had he was my he was my he was on my right he was my right defensive tackle. And and Cat Cabbage and Jumbo Juleski and I all played on the we we were the front four in New York, and it, we were the one that started the um, the blitz the, the twisting and all those kind of things, the red dogs and all that stuff. Tom Landry gave us a, a whole system. Of playing defense, and we played a lot of games where we won by seven, or we won by two, or we won by five. But we we played close game. Team had very hard to whip us, and because we had such great defensive uh, personnel. And I always tell Sam Huff, I said, Sam, we made we made you we made you a Hall of Famer because our job was to keep keep people off of Sam Huff. <laughs> I remember we were playing one game, and, and, and three guys was blocking me from Green Bay, and and they were driving me back. He said, "Rosie, why are you getting into my way?" I said, "Sam, I got three guys blocking me. How many blocking you?" <laughs> uh, it, it was fun, man. It, it was, you know, after a while, I'd I'd be out there and I'd be talking. I remember once we were playing the Baltimore Colts and. The, and they ran a silly draw, draw play on my side. And every time they set it up, I, I tear it up. And, and so I said, I said, I said to Lenny, Lenny Moore was a guy I was getting all the time. I said, hey, Lenny, man, they're trying to kill you, man, because every time you get the ball, I'm tearing you up. He said, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> he always came back, too. So it was, it was, it was fun game and you learned to talk. After you relax, where well, you know that 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 you are a player, and you just go out there and laugh and talk and play the game. And you guys, with the Giants, had a lot of success. Um, we were, uh, and seven years of New York Giants, I played in five World Championship games. And one of the most memorable was the 1958 game against the Colts. Yes. What was that like? I I, I only played the first quarter. Because the week the, the the week before I hurt my knee, and so they knew I had hurt my knee. When they came out, they played something like called the hurry up game, and they they spread way out, I mean, way out. Uh, and so uh, our defense had to get up and move fast to get over there. But we laughed at them when they ran those kind of uh, plays because. They didn't know that our defensive. We didn't even have to go in the huddle to play our defense. We if 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 they played in any offense they got into, we had an automatic play. If they if they ran something we didn't know, we we're gonna we we're gonna blitz it. And so we we were we could always laugh. Maybe try to run these quick quick uh, plays on us. Heck, we could stand on the line and run our plays. And all the guy had to say black, blue, red, or brown. And we already knew what to do. You had you mentioned your um, assistant coach, Tom Landry. You also had Vince Lombardi, who was the offensive coordinator. And we talked to Herb Adder last month, and he said that Vince was a great guy, that basically when they were in Green Bay, he made sure that they were safe and he stuck up for them and he, there was not a racist bone in that guy's body. Well, I can't tell you what's in his body. I, I know he was a great coach, but, I mean, I can't go inside of him and tell you what was in there. Uh, you can only tell from outside what you feel that was in, that was in there. I, I didn't. I, I knew Vince Lombardi, and when I knew Vince, uh, everything. Every time Vince would holler at someone, he'd turn around, and look at Jimmy House. Ain't that right, Jim? 
and, and Jim Lee Howard said, yeah. And he didn't have the boldness that he had with the Green Bay Packers that he had with the, because with the New York Giants, Jim Lee Howard was the head coach. So Benny Lombardi uh, always acknowledged uh, Jim Lee Howe when he was making a chewing a guy a ball player out, but he was a great coach. You mentioned Jim Brown. A lot of people said he was the greatest player that ever played. Do you agree with that? He was the greatest player ever played. What made him so great? Just his size and his quickness, or could he do everything? Uh, Jim Brown was tough. He was very fast, and he was very good at finding the holes and and and. and and everyone was trying to stop him. And the reason why the New York Giants beat him all the time was that we we found out keys that he gave when he was carrying the ball. So he had automatic keys. He, 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 if he was going to run one player a certain way, he'd be in a certain position. And so we found those keys out, and, they, and, and we were always ready for him. And... Uh, because I remember one time uh, they set up a, 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 a draw, and I jumped on him in the backfield. And next thing I know, I was down. I had to bite him on the leg to make it, make him stop. <laughs> but but he went down. But I was down the field five yards, and I caught him in, in the backfield. He was that strong. You you've got to get his leg stopped. You can't hang on his body because he carry it. Well, and he, he he was almost the size of the defensive linemen who were trying to tackle him too. Well, no, I, I don't. Well, yeah, not 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 that many though, because uh, I was biggest myself, uh, Big Daddy, and uh, uh, got Chicago Bears. Les Bingham, was it Les Bingham? Somebody like Les Bingham was like three thirty, and 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 big and. Uh, the other guy I talked about was um, the other big guy. So it was three of us that was the biggest in there. And uh, mine, because I was always eat, overeating. There was a lot of good restaurants to eat in New York, though. Oh, yeah. man. But, but I, I was a soul food man. I'd go to soul food restaurants, and I'd eat a, a order, order pork chops with rice and gravy, and the next thing I know before I finished it, I ordered another one. Now, that was dumb. I mean, I, I was overeating. You mentioned you had a Jewish friend. He didn't get you uh, eating corned beef? No, not really, no. Alvin Beinstein, yeah, they, he, he had a village uh, grocery, uh, village bakery. And I called him. He, he just died not too long ago, and I, I talked to his daughter every once in a while now. Uh, he really was a lovely guy, and uh, and he was always... He was supportive of what I was doing always, and he called me, and we talked on the phone, uh, and that went on all of, all of all of his life. And then you're very successful in New York, and next thing you know, you get traded to the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, How was that that was that they broke my heart. It was like your family said, I, "We don't want you," and uh, I felt very bad about that. Uh, but I went to the Rams, and the Rams was a mess. Black ball players didn't like black ball players, and none of them liked the, the whites didn't like some of the whites, and, and neither one of them loved each other. And they kept telling me about don't don't mess with those guys, man. Those guys are, uh, are prejudiced. And they told me that one guy in particular, a guy named Red Phillip, they said Red Phillip was prejudiced. 
And so I, I, I go talk to Red Phillips all the time. I talk to him and talk to him. And Red Phillips was a nice guy. And uh, one day he got, they got uh, in an argument on the field and one uh, on a black defensive ball player and Red called him a nigger. And, of course, uh, everybody got upset. And, and Red came over and he apologized to me. And I said, well, did you, did you call me a nigger? He said, no. I said, well, why are you apologizing to me? Go tell the guy that you said it to. You want to apologize? I said, that's, that's how you deal with that. You know, you didn't bother me because I already know who I am. So go tell the guy that you, um, who you said it to. I mean, you, you know, you, you said it because you were angry about the, the way he was playing you. So you, you blurted it out. And I know you didn't mean to do that, but that's part of the racist thing. So you go and apologize to him, not me. And so he did. So, I mean, you know, people put a put a handle on a guy, and he make mistakes, and they put a handle on it, it sticks. And not 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 that it should, but it does. People get an opinion about you, and they throw that opinion out there like, and the next thing, everybody's got it. And it's not right. How did Deacon Jones and Lamar Lungley deal with that type of situation? Well, I don't know how they dealt with it. I know how I dealt with it. I can't tell you. Uh, we had no problem. We we loved each other. We me me Deacon and Merlin also. We 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 were together from the time we started playing in, with uh, in uh, L.A. until Merlin died, until Lamar died. We were always together. If you ask if you ask one guy to do it, you can get to all four of them. We're always supportive of one another because we love one another. Uh, you were the fearsome foursome. Do you remember who came up with that name? Uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, guys from the Rams. Uh, I, I I forgot who his name. I think it was. Uh, I'm not going to try to call his name, but it was uh, the public relations office. They made it up. Okay. They came up with that fearsome foursome, and that stuff. We like it, and also we always said it ourselves also. And then we'd all begin to say we're the best, we're the greatest. And everybody else began to say it too. And so we always said anytime you talk about the fearsome person, we were the greatest defensive line ever hit the football field. And uh, we got two Hall of Fames out of that on that team, that's Deacon and Merlin. And uh, that could probably be more, but... Uh, my I, after I became um, my first year, I was first uh, second team All American, and in my second year in the pros, I was unanimously All Pro, and then I went into the Army for two years. And you know, and when you when I was out of that for two years, another guy get to be first team, and you you just so I was just like second team a lot a lot of years, and so. They, they're, uh, and Lamar Lundy was a great ball player. We all, we had, we had great potential, these, these guys, all of us, all of these guys. And so I loved all of them. And so it's, and Merlin, and Merlin and Deacon, um, they, they pushed them to be Hall of Fame and they became Hall of Famers. And they would deserve it also, by the way. And uh, so I, I had no envy of them. And, uh, but I realized also that, uh, because of my my disruption of of time, because I had to go in the army for that time, that I wasn't able to stay there and stay on top, 
until uh, I came out. And when I came out the first year out of the Army, I, I hurt my arm, so I played a whole year, actually a half a year with one arm. But I went out there on the field and played with one arm. Deacon mentioned to us that he got a bonus for every sack he got. He was paid $500 per sack. Did you have a similar thing in your contract? No, no. And I don't think Deacon, well, I don't know anything about that. I, 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 I don't know anything about that. And who would have paid him? Till this day, Deacon still says he was the greatest defensive player ever, defensive lineman ever. Deacon Jones was a great defensive lineman, and the head slap was, was what I taught him. He learned that from me. And he said, well, I, I perfected it. <laughs> How did you come up with the idea of the head slap? Uh, I was playing in, in the uh, All-Star game out here. And I wanted to get to the quarterback quick. And I saw that I couldn't get there like I wanted to. So I had to fake the, the, the lineman, make him go one way and slap him with the other hand and get, and get past him before he could turn around and get to me. So if I fake to the right and he stepped that way, I slapped, my, slapped him with the left hand. And then I put my right hand between he and I and he couldn't, and he couldn't catch me because I'd be in the backfield. So uh, I, I, I made that move. In the uh, in the All Star game, and then um, uh, it just I just started doing a lot, and 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 then uh, I used to practice, and 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 I if I didn't want to mess around with a guy on the on the field, I'd head slap and I'd be by him. So I that's the, and that's where I did, I did it all the time, and finally uh, Deacon started using, and Deacon started hitting him with both hands, Deacon, and so that's Deacon learned that for me. Now. George Allen was your coach with the Rams. What was he like? George Allen was strictly football man. He, he, he didn't want to talk about nothing but football. And if you want to talk to George, you talk about football. And uh, that he was that, but he was dedicated. He was an excellent coach. He coached every phase of the game. He developed every phase of the game. And he said that one phase that they didn't that that you don't develop. That's the phase that you lose the game, but you win the game by the belt and all the phases of the game, and that's what he did. He worked on every phase of the game always. And so he was a very thorough man in getting a team ready. And so they, all the ball players had a lot of respect for him, and he would always have that rah-rah spirit always. How did you end up, get, after you retired, getting your own TV show, The Rosie Greer Show, on ABC? I had broken my Achilles tendon. And uh, I was coming off of the, uh, the, that season. I wasn't sure whether I was going to go back. And I went up and started practicing with Maryland and and uh, Deacon. And, and we were going to have a holdout that year. We were going to ask for a million dollars for the four, four of us. And we had, we, uh, uh, I think, Kay Stevens, uh, an actress, uh, a singer somewhere, and told us that we ought to do that because we were, we were a big name and all that. So we were going to hold out for a... Uh, a uh, million dollars, except I, I was coming off of uh, my uh, broken Achilles tendon after about a year, and and I was out working out with De- Merlin and Deacon one day, and 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 Merlin's daughter Kelly was running faster than I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> and then uh, I had gotten involved in the uh, in the campaign with Senator Kennedy. 
And um, I was with him when he was assassinated, and so I decided that I needed to work on something, the real thing, because football was a football world, and there was a real world going on around us, and I wanted to try to do something else to try to stop uh, the, the killing. So I was having to be up in uh, up in uh, uh, Hollywood, and 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 a, and a gentleman met me and said, you know, you ought to come on to ABC. We, we got a the uh, FCC. Yes, FCC. Yeah, they had they had a um, a mandate out that 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 each city, each state should have a um, a show hosted by someone of color, so that they could uh, more or less talk about what's going on in that na- neighborhood. So they they chose me. I went to have me with them and had Ron Ron gave Ron I can't think of Ron last thing. Ron was my agent and, and went up there and uh, they chose me to do it. And Jim Baker was my uh, producer. And we had everybody. After a while, everybody wanted to come on. And uh, 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 Mickey Rooney had Bob Hope and everybody came on my show and. And we was on about three or four years, and then we tried to go uh, network, and uh, it just it just didn't do it, didn't didn't do it. We we thought we had won the Emmy one time, and uh, someone else won it, and then little by little uh, it just faded out. But it was a good show, and I was I was very uh, uh, Fred in the beginning, but then as I got more experience. Then it became very easy to do, and, and I loved doing it. But I didn't want to read no cue cards. I wanted to do it from memory, and and because I felt like when you read things, you're reading it. Like I used to always fuss about the president. When they get up the speech, they're reading a speech, and they say, oh, what a great speech. And I said, that wasn't no great speech. That was a great reading. And so um, I wanted to do – so I kind of skipped over a lot of things they wrote and said, put my words in there. And 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 I and I got adjusted to it. So I could do it. And it wasn't bad. How did you end up being a bodyguard for Ethel Kennedy? Uh, it was just everybody was all of Bobby's friends since he came. The time you know, this was the time when kids was going around saying, uh, saying um, uh, they call them policemen names and stuff like that. And so they didn't want to show any uh, uh, military type persons or people around so his friends would uh, do the thing that had to be done. That particular night, I was signed Ethel uh, to, to keep her because she was pregnant. So I was signed to stay with her. And, uh, and so I stayed with her and then uh, we went up on the stage. Uh, when they finished, they were supposed to come back to me. But when they was coming back to me because he was bringing Ethel back to me and then we, we was going to go off to the right. But there was some confusion and Bobby jumped off the back of the stage, which means I had to get Ethel off the back of the stage. And Bill Barry, who was in charge of all the all the senators' movement, he had to help me get Ethel down. And then got Ethel down and, and, and we all was going forth to, to, to catch up and, a, and a, a cameraman almost hit Ethel in the back with the cameraman, with the camera. And I blocked him from hitting her, and um, and as he went past us, shots rang out. And, uh, you know, Ethel always was freezed up when there was kind of loud noise around her. And so I 
I put my arms around her and held her for a few seconds. And then I took off running to see what was going on up there. When I ran forward, I saw these guys uh, fighting with Sirhan, Sirhan. They didn't have control of him. So to me, to get control, you need to uh, stop the action. So I went and I grabbed his uh, 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 leg and put him up on a table. And George Clifton was struggling trying to get the gun out of his hand. And after I got his leg locked and, and wrapped so they can't, he couldn't kick, I'm looking at, I'm looking at George Clifton, and he can't get the gun out. And he's got the gun pointed toward his own face. So I put my hand under the, uh, under the, the trigger house, and then I pulled the hammer back and put my thumb under there, and, and I just rinsed it out and put it in my pocket. And uh, later on, uh, after they had taken everybody away, I was sitting on the floor, and I was crying, and Raven Johnson came up and asked me, did I have the gun? I said, yeah. And, and, and he said, well, give it to me. And so I gave it to him and, and he walked away with another guy and I was, I was all finished. So I, I went upstairs to watch, you know, what was going on. They were all crying up there and, and wringing their hands and all that stuff. And so I decided, well, I'm going home. So the time I got home and walked in the house, my wife said, you, you can't, you can't, you can't come home. Ethel Kennedy called for you to come down to the, uh, uh, the hospital. And so that's when I went down to the hospital. But I hope that answered your question because I was all over that one. No, it was, I didn't realize everything that happened that night. Mm. So that's how I, I was, I was told to take care of her that night. That's why I was with her. And when we went really bodyguard, we were friends. And it, when everyone started calling bodyguard, there's no need to try to stop it. Just let Except people said that. We used to always try to say we were not bodyguards. We were friends. But, you know, no, there's no need, so we just let them go with it. I assume at some point you had become active in politics. No. i never been active in politics other than supporting people. I, I supported, uh, uh, in other words, if I campaigned for a guy, like I campaigned uh, with uh, uh, Bush, with the Bush. Whoever ran against uh, Clinton, oh, and uh, yeah, and so when uh, uh, Clinton won, I wrote him a letter and told him that uh, uh, I had campaigned for the other man, and he had won by the people's majority, and that if he needed me to do anything, um, I'm ready. So I finally got a letter, letter back from him. He said, "About time." <laughs> <laughs> so I knew him from before. I knew him with President Carter. I knew that uh, uh, he and I went walking one night in, in, in Washington, D.C. without a dinner at the, at the White House. And uh, I used to see him, you know, when he was governor. And I talked to him in the, sometime in the hotel. I see him, we talk. And uh, so I knew I knew him. So, But, you know, you you get involved because you find out that you think that you are insignificant, and then I realized that I was not insignificant. And it's my country, and I should, I have a right, and, I, and it's my duty to get involved in the political processes. Otherwise, you don't have one. And so I urge everyone that's listening to your program, register and vote. I don't care who you vote for, but vote. Make sure that your voice is heard. And then when, when things are going wrong that you don't like, you say, well, what did I do about it? Well, if you voted and you got involved, you tried to do something about it. But you remember, 
The president cannot do it by himself. He needs every citizen to do their part in making a difference in our society. Did you ever think that we'd have a black president in the United States? No. I, I, I never, I never, I never even, I, I tell you one, I, one time I knew, uh, who was president? Carter came, oh, 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 Ford. I knew that this country was open to any man who could speak that with intelligence towards what he believed this country was about. And I started out the campaign, I think, with, with uh, 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 Senator Muskie. And, and, but everywhere I went, I saw, I saw President Carter's people. And, and so I wouldn't do anything. I just kept going with this guy. And then when President Carter won, I uh, won the primary. I, I got involved in his campaign. One night I was, I was, I was sitting in the house. I had a, I had a belief that I would not get involved with any political uh, 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 person unless I had a chance to talk with them personally. And I talked one night. I got a call from President uh, President Carter, and and I talked about him, and I got to be friends with him. And I got a call one time from President Reagan. But I never got, I never called, uh, I got a call from uh, Obama. I wrote him a couple of letters uh, after he was president, and I talked about the drum major that we needed in this nation. But he never, ever uh, responded to me. I still haven't heard anything from me even yet. Yet I expect in a few weeks, uh, I think I can solve one of his problems, but I can't, I can't do it until I'm, I, I'll be ready in a few weeks that I want to call and try to make a, uh, a meeting with them because I think I can help them solve a problem. And the problem is about uh, 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 no no work for the inner cities. No People don't have jobs and stuff. I have a concept, and I think it works. I know it works, but I want to make sure I get it all together yet. And then then I'm going to call to have a meeting with them. First, I'm going to meet with Mike Milken because uh, Mike Milken is a very smart man, and I, I want Michael to... Uh, he, Michael already have a, have an overview of it already. So uh, uh, when I get uh, when I get the uh, the, the the financial uh, figures in, then I'm gonna uh, ask for meeting with the president and show him the concept and why it works and why the one that they had didn't work because it was it was it was anyway. I, I'll have it in a few weeks. Now I want to know how you got involved in Needlepoint because I, I remember. Rosie Greer needle pointing, and I, and I thought it was so wonderful because mm-hmm. here you have this giant man doing what back in the day people would say, well, that, well, that's for a woman to do. That's and that's, that's, it, a, that's a that's a woman's thing. That's a sissy. <laughs> and uh, so and so, uh, first of all, I didn't care what anyone called me because, as I said, the thing is known who you are. Who you are. So anyway, I'm driving down the street one day. And I see all these incredible women going in this, into this shop. So I pulled my car over and, and got my guitar out of the car, put it on my back, and I went into this shop. It was called Jebus, with a needlepoint shop. So I go into Jebus. I stop a couple of ladies and I said, "Can I see that?" And they look at it, and I look on. I look on the back. I said, well, "You, you, you got too. You, you don't have enough. Uh, you got too much uh, bulge in the back." 
And so I kept going around doing that and talking. And then the girls in the shop said, 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 came over to me and said, Rosie, if you're gonna if you're gonna do that, you're gonna have to learn how to needlepoint. So uh, I said, okay. So I went down and started. Uh, they started teaching me the continental stitch. So I was doing that and going and going and going until I got to be pretty good at it. And then they wanted me to take um, a picture with a society lady. Uh, 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 can't think of her name. But anyway, they wanted me to take a picture with this lady. So it was just going to be for local. But And we went to this uh, uh, a, a club that a uh, uh, health club, and they didn't want me in there, so they wouldn't let me in the, in the health club to take a picture with this lady. And her husband was was chairman of the board of of, of tobacco company, Jones something like that. Uh, anyway, so they wouldn't let me in there, and so we we went to another place, and they let us sit in there, and they took a picture of she and I sitting there, and I was doing the point, and she was doing the point, and, and then. Uh, Next thing I know, it was headlines in the New York society section. And, man, I got phone calls from guys who said I'm blowing their image of guys. And I and I said, well, if by my being doing this makes you feel lower as an athlete, uh, I said, that's really dumb because that, what you do don't make you who you are. I said, I'm just doing something I like. But I was meeting all the incredible women, and I, it was just great, man. And so uh, that's how I got involved. And then uh, finally I got a call uh, from a lady in New York. They wanted to do a book with me. And I said, oh, no, I'm not going to do no book. I'm not that far enough. And uh, I had done a picture. They were supposed to do a picture of me to go into, like, Look Magazine, one little magazine. Yeah. <clears throat> And they took the picture, but they did, like, you could pull it out. There's a big old picture of me sitting there needle point. And I was, oh, man, I was bugged. I was, oh, my goodness. And and so now I'm really getting bugged by these people doing the needle point book. So finally I agreed to do a book called Needle Point for Men that did that book. And, uh, uh, man, did guys razz me. And they, it didn't bother me whatsoever because it didn't. I I did what I wanted to do, and I came out with uh, needlepoint, uh, uh, my own needlepoint set, and uh, um, and so it was just good. It was good. So I I did a lot of stuff, and uh, and a lot of time I send stuff away to be, and people want to see it, and and I never got it back. So it, you know, you don't just do things, and I did. A, a caricature of Sammy Davis in his many uh, 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 performance acts, and we worked uh, over a year to do it. <clears throat> and after we got it done, we were going. I, I wanted to give it to Alta V's, and the lady that I did it with, she, I didn't. She took it and left. I never seen it no more. But that's how I got involved because I saw all these incredible women in there, and that's why I did it. And, and, and then I liked it. Rosie, uh, my daughter's got her two friends over. They got a question for you. She wanted to know why the white and black players didn't spend time together off the field. Well, because they, you know, they usually, uh, white ball players will have their own special plate that they like to go. And, uh, 
and a lot of places didn't really accept the black ball players, and uh, so, and a lot of the they were not close friends. A lot of the black and white ball players were not close friends, and uh, so they didn't do things together. And it, it, it should never never have to be that way. It shouldn't matter what color you are. You know, Merlin and I and uh, Deacon and Lamar, we always did a lot of things together. Mike Henry and I, you know, we, there was a lot of guys that were very close. See, it doesn't matter what color you are, but people have a tendency to go with their own color. Uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, my son is, is part white and part black. So I didn't go along with it, and a lot of people didn't go along with it. My wife was white. Yeah, so died three years ago. It's changing because, I mean, they're in fourth grade and they don't understand it. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, don't know, the kids, they don't know the world that you grew up in. Yeah, but see, the kids, the kids if they're not taught by the people that, that they're watching, they won't even pay no attention because it doesn't make any difference to them. <laughs> but grown-ups throwing words around, uh, uh, things around uh, and uh, acting certain ways, the kids pick it up, saying what they said, and they don't even know what they mean, and they just do it because they're, they're someone, someone else was doing it, or saying it, and so uh, they they get caught up in the same thing. They don't mean to, but we've influenced them by the way we act. You know, you know, like in the newspaper, a lot of time when you you read the newspaper, and they said certain such a thing happened. He was a black man. Uh, or the black person did this, 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 but they write about other people. They don't put that down there. See, you can watch and see uh, the 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 attitude that some newspaper have by painting. It was this race of people that did that. It's just like when Bobby Kennedy announced that Martin Luther King was assassinated, <clears throat> and then he was in Indianapolis. And, and and when the people riled up, he said, well, uh, if you're going to get mad and fight white people, then I should be mad fighting white people, too, because it was a white man that killed my brother. And so he broke down those barriers of hating white people just by letting that his brother was killed also by a white man. So it was a, it, it was an assassin. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it was assassin's choice and it had nothing to do with the color and so little by little uh, a lot of things are, uh, are going away I'll tell you what if you want to meet President Obama I know two other guys who have been big in the community trying to help Jim Brown and Fred Williamson Bring them yeah I know, I know Jim Brown very well and, and, I, and I know that I want to help America I'm not, want to help, I'm not my, my interest is not to help the president so much as help my responsibility for the country my desire is to help the country, but I need the support of the president. I don't need it because what, 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 the idea, the concept that I have, I need the athletes to get involved with me. And that's, that's all, that's what I need. And, and, uh, and, but it would be a, 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 a great thing for the president to get involved because it's going to solve a major problem that he's, he's going through right now. I have one more question. I'm, I want to know how you became involved in the Free to Be You and Me with Marlo Thomas and friends. 
I want to know if you're a better singer than Lem Barney. <laughs> uh, Lem Barney's pretty good. Uh, I was. That's what, that's I what was, he told I, us. I, I had my own band, and I was traveling all over the country, and I was singing at a Playboy Club in Atlanta. And Marlo Thomas and I got to be friends because you know I was doing uh, uh, a series with a with a dad, uh, Danny Thomas, and so she came down to Atlanta where I was working, and they said they got a song they want me to sing. It called "It's All Right to Cry." And so I sang that song in in that and in, in that in that, uh, but they didn't want me to sing it. They want me just just barely sing it. They want me to try to sing it, but to sing it for young people. So I sang it the way they want me to sing it, and uh, so that's how I got involved in because it made a difference to send the kids that it, it is all right, and it is it's all right to cry, and to hear it come from. Uh, a big, you know, former football player, you know, you, you think, okay, you're a macho guy, you know, but regardless of what your size and who you are, you have a right to have emotions to, to go along with that. And Absolutely. Because, you know, e- even big guys can cry, and it's... No, and it's, it's a, it, it, they ought to cry. A lot of guys ought to cry because emotionally, if you think that because you're big, you shouldn't cry, you, you, you're... you're you just messed up right there because you have a uh, a deal. You feed yourself when you cry; it relieves the tension that's going on. It's like boiling over. Mm-hmm. You let it come out in tears. A lot of people let it come out in anger, and that's why you see a lot of these kids uh, shooting and all this kind of stuff because they didn't find a way to get that bitterness that was in their heart out. So they take and they try to do it another way, and they're doing it the wrong way. If you just cry, all that business will be over, but then people have no right to be going around calling people names and all those kind of things. It's just like uh, it's just like um, people always getting angry because the person is of another, uh, uh, whether he's gay or straight. We don't have a right to, to, to jump on anybody because of anything. If anything, me being a believer, I'm a minister, I need to try to save the law, not go out and try to get mad at people and, and tell them how bad they are. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to try to tell the people about the Lord, and they have a right to make their own decision. Thanks to Rosie Greer for spending the entire hour with us. I'm David Spada, along with my co-host, Elliot Harris. Join us again next week for another edition of Sports and Torts here on TalkZone.com.